Larry Miner is the Associate Administrator for Policy at the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration. We are planning to put out that AAPRM ultimately later this year, and that'll give a chance, give y'all a chance to weigh in on what direction you think we ought to consider going to improve our safety fitness determination process and whether we should maintain the three-tier system of satisfactory, conditional, and unsatisfactory, or revise it to just a two-tier system where you're either fit or unfit to operate commercial motor vehicles. Fit or unfit, that's what many small fleets in particular have been calling for for years. But so very many have sat in that conditional limbo, some even for decades, after an adverse review. And despite efforts to improve and difficulty getting FMCSA out to their site to do the only thing that can result in a satisfactory rating in today's system, that's a fully comprehensive on-site audit generally, though there have been limited exceptions to that rule, particularly during the pandemic. We're going to hear more from Larry Miner from his talk at the Specialized Transportation Symposium earlier this month to specialized carrier attendees. We're hearing more from FMCSA here at METS too, Louisville, Kentucky. But interestingly, their regulatory update session yesterday at the show didn't bring up the same attention to address the safety rating regime. I guess they think owner-operators really could care less about ratings and how they're conducted. I think I can assure them they're off the mark there. While few are likely to ever be rated, the same business issues that arise for small carriers from a conditional rating, difficulty doing business with many brokers, to name one, it hits them equally, with perhaps even less ability to get the feds back out to their place of business for that follow-up audit to potentially move them back to the satisfactory category. I'm Todd Dills, your host as usual for this edition of Overdrive Radio for Friday, March 31st. Time for creation of the stories and podcasts and everything we do here at Overdrive has been short, pretty typical of Matt's. It's so big, we all spend most of our time gathering, doing interviews, witnessing the various comings and goings, and so much that doesn't ever see the light of day on our website until much later. Given that, I'd edited much of Miner's presentation from the early March symposium ahead of time to be able to bring this one to you today. But it's not all month-old regs content here. We'll drop in for a bit of fun, too, with Rob Howes, Executive Vice President and Chief Testing Officer of the company that bears his last name. Overdrive Radio sponsor Howes, of course. A bit more lengthy talk over interesting results of a Howes company survey we'll visit in a later podcast. But Rob filled us in for this one on just what's happening for the company here at Matt's. Likewise, plans for the next Howes Hall of Fame announcement. You can hear my interview with owner-operator Angelique Temple, the last member inducted into the Hall of Fame in the December 9th, 2022 edition. Find it at overdriveonline.com slash overdrive hyphen radio. As for that possible safety rating change, here's what Larry Miner had to say about it in full at the Specialized Carrier Symposium. And safety fitness determination or safety fitness, that's where we get into the distinction between satisfactory, conditional, unsatisfactory. Note that this is separate from the recent notes that we saw concerning the safety measurement system, and that's the CSA program and the alerts for the high-risk carriers and those SMS scores. So this is separate. This is actually getting at the regulatory provision. It's how we actually do the ratings for carriers. So we are planning to put out that AAPR in this year, 
and that'll give a chance, give y'all a chance to weigh in on what direction you think we ought to consider going to improve our safety and fitness determination process, and whether we should maintain the three tier system satisfactory, initial or not satisfactory, or revise it to just a two tier system where you're either fit or unfit to operate the commercial motor vehicles. So we invite you to comment on that when that advance notice of the cultural making is published later this year. I do imagine that would be somewhat welcome news for many here, depending on the specifics, of course. Fact is that the majority of ratings now for two years straight that FMCSA issues, period, have been conditional. Satisfactory ratings are few and far between, and changes to what's required to issue a satisfactory rating would likely be in the conversation around this rulemaking. Time will tell. We'll hear from Miner also about the DOT's National Roadway Safety Strategy and FMCSA's place within it, about how the entry-level driver training program is going, about getting that program more effectively interoperable with state licensing agencies, about the late fall ELD regs questions asked, about the notion of universal electronic IDs for every truck out there, asked for by CVSA, and speed limiters, of course. There's another change upcoming with regard to the drug and alcohol positive test results clearinghouse too, that will require state agencies to downgrade driver CDLs if they're found in prohibited status with the test popping there. If you have someone that's got an issue with drug abuse or alcohol misuse, that we catch up with those individuals and take action so that if the state driver licensing agencies have to query our drug and alcohol clearinghouse, they see that a CDL holder is listed in the prohibited status because they test positive drugs or alcohol misuse, but they have not completed the return to duty process, downgrade that commercial driver's license so that any law enforcement official that stops them will see that this person isn't supposed to be behind the wheel of a commercial motor vehicle. After the break, more of what that could look like. Here's a message from Overdrive Radio's sponsor, Howes. Every diesel needs to defend against clogged injectors, low lubricity, and slipping fuel economy. The best defense is the best defender. Howe's Diesel Defender with Advanced IDX4 Detergent. Get a deeper clean, maximum lubricity, and boosted fuel economy. Guaranteed. Howe's Diesel Defender. Get optimal performance. Howe's. For every diesel. Finding the Howe's. H-O-W-E-S. Houseproducts.com. Matt's this year in the North Wing booth for the company. Unfortunately, you won't find the virtual reality immersive simulator I got to try out last year there, putting users inside the virtual Hall of Fame. And there's a reason for that. One entirely outside of house control, unfortunately. Here's Rob Howes describing that reason. Yeah, unfortunately, we weren't able to bring that this year. Microsoft uh, discontinued the application that it was uh, based on. And they only gave two-ish months notice before they completely took it down. Uh, so we weren't able to rebuild anything in time for the show. It was two months prior. So here we are planning the whole show out, right? And then, yeah. then suddenly they're... <laughs> Surprise! Uh, so basically, like the, the architecture online of the house Hall of Fame is the same, but you couldn't do the yeah, so same they're, kind of thing you wanted to do here. Like they're two... So the VR platform was different than the website platform. So they were the same virtual space, but done in different ways. And uh, 
it was called Alt Space by Microsoft. It's the base platform that was used to do the Hall of Fame for virtual reality, and that's what they got rid of. So we'll. I don't know if we're going to redo it or not. I mean, uh, it's a it's a big expense either way, but we're, we're going to look at it um, and see. If we do it, we'll do it with an actual like game engine, and that way the program will be ours. Nobody can take it down. <laughs> so. The, uh, the hazards of relying yeah. on uh, a third party. Correct. And jokes aside, what you will find in the booth is this chance to spin a wheel for a bottle of a variety of house products, among other prizes. Really good folks all around. It's a great team there for sure. Rob Howes also updated progress on the House Hall of Fame. Here he is talking about the process of selection of the next member, whether person, place, or thing. We're doing a new process this time where we're involving all of our uh, customers and, and followers to, to participate. We're doing some polling, so it's going to be an interesting Hall of Fame inductee. So as you know, we, we don't just induct people, we also induct places, things. Um, so I don't want to give away too much, but uh, come, come around July-ish time frame at uh, another event, we'll be announcing the next inductee and it'll be basically chosen by all of the people following the Hall of Fame currently. Okay, so you got some, you got a, a bunch of nominations. Those came also from people in your customer base and audience. Yep. Uh, and then you've already put out uh, you know, kind of a poll survey for people to make a choice or, there's or been, are you going to? There's been some Again, I don't want to give away too much. There's been some secretive polling okay. that we've been doing, and it'll develop into more as we get closer. And it it's that kind of fun. It's something people should keep an eye out, yeah. Uh, we like to have fun with it. Um, you know, the, the Hall of Fame is a serious thing as well, but as a company, you know, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And Angelique Temple was an amazing inductee. All of our inductees are amazing inductees. and. The fact that the community can get together and recommend some of these people is is, is a wonderful thing, and and I want to add that jump on our site, put your own you know nominees in there. We're constantly looking for for new it's nominees for new inductees. Open, like, always open. Yeah. yeah, you can at any time. It's not like there's a deadline. Here, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but yeah, we want to look at all aspects of the industry and and have some fun with it too. So so there's some some cool stuff coming. Yeah, you got me. That's what. <laughs> That's a good show, and yeah. and uh, we like doing some of the announcements at an event. You know, where we can we can talk to drivers and participants. Stay tuned, and tune in next week for more of my talk with Howes about the survey they conducted more about the current fuel quality situation all around the nation. Now, on to FMCSA's Larry Miner and the regulatory update talk he gave at the Specialized Transportation Symposium. I'll be back here at the SCNRA meeting to tell you about all the wonderful things that FMCSA is working on. And I want to start off first with highlighting our national roadway safety strategy. One of the first things that the Secretary of Transportation did when he came on board back in 2021 
was to really focus the public spotlight on the highway safety crisis that we're facing as a nation, where the number of fatalities has been increasing year after year for the past 10 years, and we definitely need to focus the spotlight on that and see what can we at the DOT do about it, especially working with our stakeholders to work together, state agencies, industry, what can we do to turn those numbers around and get it in the right direction? So we did roll out the National Roadway Safety Strategy in 2021, and we just celebrated the first year anniversary of the National Roadway Safety Strategy. And I invite you to visit our website to see more about that. You'll learn more about the highway safety problem that we're facing, see the data that we've been looking at. You can learn about the safe system approach that we're using at the DOT to try to get everyone focused on the highway safety problem. And you can see how our work at the DOT is really zeroing in on the roadway saving problem that we're facing. And just to give you an idea of the data that we've been looking at that really shocked us, you'll see that from that 10 year period, 2011 to 2020, more than 350,000 roadway fatalities. And it doesn't usually get a lot of attention because it's one or two fatalities at a time spread all over the nation so it doesn't really resonate with people but when you step back and you look at that national data year after year and over a 10-year period those numbers are quite alarming more than 350,000 fatalities over that 10-year period and we've made a commitment that we want to drive that number down as quickly as possible with our ultimate goal being zero roadway fatalities some of you probably remember a number of years ago, we focused on the terminology that we stopped referring to all these incidents as accidents, and we started calling them crashes. We call them crashes because we believe each one of these incidents is avoidable. So when we look at that 354,000, we think that that should have been zero. These are things that just didn't have to happen. And when you look at the layers of complexity to all the things that led to that crash, there are things that could have been done to prevent it. So that's why we call them crashes, and we're looking at these fatalities and realize something's got to change. And just focusing on the large truck piece of that, you can see how those numbers have been going up. So that's why we're definitely committed to getting out to talking to the industry groups and working with the state agencies to make sure that we work on that heavy truck piece and turn that number around, because that's the part that FUCSA is responsible for. And the safe system approach that I mentioned earlier, we're looking at safer people. What are the things we need to do with the drivers and the roadway users when they're out there? The pedestrians, the cyclists, the truck drivers, the car drivers. What are the things we need to do to influence driver behavior when they're behind the wheel, when they're out there on the roadway? Dealing with the folks that drink and drive, folks that are driving with influence with drugs, folks that are speeding, what are the driver behavior things that we need to focus on to turn that around? Safer vehicles, what are some of the technologies that we can consider as far as requiring commercial motor vehicles and other motor vehicles to help reduce the likelihood of a crash, whether that's automatic emergency braking or other technologies? Looking at safer speeds, how do we get roadway users to slow down a bit and obey the posted speed limits? And also doing a deeper dive in those posted speed limits. What are the analyses that go into setting the speed limits so that when motorists are using the roadway, they're confident that the speed limit sign that they're looking at, that is the appropriate speed that people should be driving and they shouldn't go 10, 20, 30 miles over that posted speed limit. So looking at safer speeds, safer roads. 
what are some of the infrastructure things that we need to consider as far as our roadways? Do we need bicycle lanes when we're in the cities? What are some of the infrastructure things that we need to consider to improve roadway safety? Post-crash care. Now that's a very important issue when you get to some of the rural areas in the country because it's not the actual crash that may have killed someone, the actual impact at the moment, it was the delay of getting the first responders out there and then getting the person transported back to an emergency center. So in those rural areas, you may have some incredible time gaps there between the crash happening and getting the first responder out there to the scene to get the person transported for some primary care. So that we're looking at that. So that's our safe system approach in the different areas that we're focusing our work on at the DOT and also the areas that we're working with our state partners and the industry and other associations to try to focus on how we can get those numbers down. And a couple of the action items that we have listed for FMCSA in that national roadway safety strategy, CDL holders, traffic violations. So that if you have a CDL holder, and they commit an offense in a state other than where they live, making sure the state that cited them for those things and where the conviction took place, transmit that information back to the state of domicile so that the state driver licensing agency that issued that CDL will receive the information and take the appropriate <laughs> driver licensing action against that person. So transmitting that information electronically rather than mailing it or faxing it and then having papers sit in the back office at the state driver licensing agency, get that information onto the driving record as soon as possible so that if we have someone that has a track record of just really unsafe driving behaviors, get the information onto their driving record and take action against that CDL holder. So get the unsafe CDL holders to correct their behaviors and get off the road until they get their act together. So that's something that's going to take effect in 2024 because we allow the states three years from the time that we issued the rule, and we're looking forward to that. CDL holders with drug and alcohol violations. That's another important area that we're focusing on in the National Roadway Safety Strategy. So that if you have someone that's got an issue with drug abuse or alcohol misuse, that we catch up with those individuals and take action so that if the state driver licensing agencies have to query our drug and alcohol clearinghouse, and they see that a CDL holder is listed in the prohibited status because they tested positive for drugs or alcohol misuse, but they have not completed the return to duty process, downgrade that commercial driver's license so that any law enforcement official that stops them will see that this person isn't supposed to be behind the wheel of a commercial motor vehicle because they've got something on their record from the drug and alcohol clearinghouse. So those are two of the highlight areas that we focus on in our national roadway safety strategy. And just to give you an idea of how important it is to get the drug and alcohol issue, these are some of the numbers from the first three years of our drug and alcohol clearinghouse. Now keep in mind that we had drug and alcohol testing regulations for more than 20 years, so that all the CDL holders should have been aware of that and should have been aware of the importance of not letting themselves get caught for drug violations or alcohol misuse in the three years that we've stood up that clearinghouse, we've caught more than 166,000 commercial driver's license holders that have one or more violations in our clearinghouse. That's a staggering number. We always knew that the number would be greater than zero once we launched that clearinghouse, but we never thought that we'd get up to 166,000. 
commercial driver's license holders that still didn't realize the importance of not allowing themselves to get caught using drugs or alcohol misuse. And out of that 166,000, more than 120,000 of them are listed in the prohibited status. That means they got caught and they still have not completed the department's return to duty process to resume their careers. More than 120,000 CDL holders sidelined because they haven't completed the process. More than 91,000 haven't even started the return to duty process. They haven't had the conversation with the substance abuse professional. So they're not even trying, they're just out. And then you've only got 45,000 out of that 166,000 that have completed the, pro the process to get back to work. So those are some shocking numbers that have caught our attention and drive home the importance of working with the state driver licensing agencies, catch up with those 120,000 and make sure that we downgrade their commercial driver's license, make a clear message that they are not supposed to be out there behind the wheel of a commercial motor vehicle. And one of the things that's really alarming is that each of these drivers fail to realize that once your name goes into that clearinghouse, you'll be visible to all employers that query the clearinghouse for five years from the time they complete the return to the process. So that means for five years, you've got a black mark by your name that you've tested positive so that when employers query that clearinghouse, they will see it for five years from the time you complete the return to duty process. And for the drivers that don't complete the return to duty process, it's just gonna sit there forever and ever and ever so that any employer that queries it, they will see that you've got a problem that popped up in our clearinghouse. So that's why we're really focusing on drugs and alcohol because the numbers are just quite alarming. And we actually have a public facing tracking <laughs> dashboard so that any of you can visit the department's National Railway Safety Strategy website, and you can see all the action items for all the agencies at DOT that are working on roadway safety. So that's FMCSA's action items, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's action items, the Federal Highway Administration, Federal Transit Administration, all the agencies that have some responsibility for roadway safety. We've got a dashboard so you can see our action items and see how we're doing as far as implementing those action items. So I invite you to visit our National Roadway Safety Strategy website to learn more about the program. And the next topic I wanted to talk about is entry-level driver training. We've now passed one year mark since we implemented the entry-level driver training program requirements. And this is one of the programs that we're really excited about because with this rulemaking, we didn't do our DC special where a bunch of experts in Washington make up something, put a rule on the books, and then we just go out there and enforce it. This is one that we developed through a negotiated rulemaking process where we had a series of meetings of stakeholders representing different segments of the industry. And we sat down in hotel conference rooms and we figured out what would a reasonable, thoughtful, meaningful rule look like on entry-level driver training. So this is the benefit or the product of a negotiated rulemaking where we didn't just make it up on our own, we reached out to the experts out there in the industry to sit down and figure out what should the regulatory requirements look like to implement the statutory mandate that we do entry-level driver training. And this program covers all the people who are trying to get their commercial driver's license to the Class A or Class B CDL for the first time, or people trying to upgrade from the Class B to the Class A, and folks trying to get the passenger or the hazmat 
for the school bus endorsement. So all those folks have to go through the new entry-level driver training program requirements. And with the rules, we set the minimum standards for the curricula that's being used by these CDL training providers. We cover the minimum qualifications for the instructors, both the classroom or theory instructors and the behind the wheel instructors. And we also cover the facilities to make sure that they've got the appropriate training facilities and the appropriate vehicles for doing commercial driver's license training. And we also cover the state licensing requirements so that if the training provider is operating in a jurisdiction that has requirements for CDL trainers, then they have to self-certify that they also meet the applicable state requirements for entry-level driver training. So it's a very robust program that we worked out with the industry, the state licensing agencies, and others, and so far things seem to be going well. So that as of February 2nd, February 7th, 2022, we've had that up and running. And what's going to happen is that once the students finish the training from a training provider that's on our registry, the training provider would upload the information to FMCSA electronically, and then the state driver licensing agency will verify that in our IT system prior to administering the CDL skills test. So it's been working for us very well that there has been no problems with it so far. So it hasn't caused any delays in folks trying to get their CDLs because of the electronic transmission of the training certificates to FMCSA and then the state's accessing it electronically. And we have a user-friendly website that we have set up so that anyone that's thinking about trying to get their CDL, they can go to our website to try to locate CDL training provider that's on our registry to verify that whatever school or um, training provider that they're going to, make sure that that person or that entity is listed in our training provider registry. And we got a nice search engine there so they can locate them by zip code and see who's out there and they can make the distinction between the training institutions or organizations that are part of a truck trucking operation that only trains people that are going to be working for that trucking operation versus the training providers that are just out there training anyone that's trying to get a CDL so they can do the search appropriately to see what's available in their area. And just to give you an idea of the numbers so far, that we've got more than 25,000 training locations out there, and that's a breakdown for the in-person training providers that are doing the classroom and the behind the wheel. And we also have the flexibility in this program for online training to cover the classroom or theory part of it. So for the smaller training providers, if you're running a small business and you're just training one or two folks a year, you can focus on the behind the wheel part of the training and let the student take the online part to cover a lot of the classroom or theory discussion. So those are some of the numbers for the first full year of operation of our entry level driver training program. And now the part that we've all been waiting for, what's FMCSA planning to do to you in the next year or two? In advance notice of proposed rulemaking concerning electronic logging devices. So we have the requirement in place for a couple of years now, mandating the use of electronic logging devices for those drivers that are required to prepare records of duty status. And we put out an advance notice of proposed rulemaking asking a series of questions, primarily about the technical specifications for electronic logging devices. Because now that we've got that experience under our belt, we've heard from some of the ELD manufacturers and some of the fleets about some of the technical complexities that they've discovered with the systems. So this is a notice where we're asking a series of questions about tweaks and adjustments to the technical specifications 
for electronic warning devices. And not only that, of course, as regular readers will remember from that information collection request last year, FMCSA also flagged that they were considering whether the pre-2000 engine exemption to the ELD mandate should apply to newer gliders with remanned older engines, as it does today, or not. Larry Miner glossed over that here, of course, though questions about the technical specifications, as he put it, does, I suppose, cover the questions specifically related to newer gliders, having to do with whether the control modules in those units could handle ELD's data requirements. Next in the round, another advanced notice of proposed rulemaking that most owner-operators were none too happy about, and in some views pretty well redundant with the in-place ELD mandate in some ways. Electronic identification of commercial motor vehicles. Uh, this is a response to a petition for rulemaking that we received from the Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance. So, this is an AMPRM for asking questions. We didn't actually propose requiring electronic IDs. We were just following up on a petition that we received and asking a series of questions to give all of you a chance to think about the issue and give us your thoughts on whether we should or should not Keep tuned for more reporting from Matt's on that issue, I think. There was an FMCSA session around two brokerage-related proposals just this morning at Mid-America. Automatic emergency braking. And I mentioned our safe system approach looking at safer vehicles. One of the things that we'll be following up on as a result of the highway authorization bill that was passed a couple of years ago is mandating automatic emergency braking on newly manufactured commercial motor vehicles. So that's a technology that in the event that for whatever reason, the driver fails to apply the brakes, then you'd have the technology that would apply the brakes automatically. Or if the driver is not applying the brakes hard enough, here's a technology that will increase the braking force to make sure that the collision is avoided. So this is gonna be a joint rulemaking with FMCSA and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration so that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's piece is to regulate the truck manufacturers and to require that they do it. They can get into all those technical details about the performance specifications for the automatic emergency braking system. And then the FMCSA piece would be to require that the fleets maintain the automatic emergency braking on those new manufactured commercial vehicles. So that's one that hopefully will be published in the next couple of months or so. And I invite all of you to look at that rulemaking proposal to see whether you have some concerns about what would be required of the manufacturers and how this could potentially impact the cost of new trucks that you purchase and the requirements that we would have for the fleets to maintain the automatic emergency braking system on these new vehicles. So that'll be another great opportunity for you to participate in the rulemaking process. And another one that will be coming up pretty soon as a follow-up to our supplemental advanced notice of proposed rulemaking. Automated driving systems. We've heard about that for several years now, about this concept of having smart trucks that can presumably drive themselves down the highway. 
and not necessarily rely on a CDL holder to drive the vehicle. So we had put out an advanced notice of proposal making under the previous administration and asked a bunch of questions and got some responses. And with the leadership direction from the new administration, we followed up with some additional questions and laid out some additional concepts that we wanted all of you to comment on. So we strongly encourage you to participate in this rulemaking process to see what safety guardrails we need to consider if indeed the technology sector is successful in producing automated vehicles that can run on the roadway without a driver behind the wheel. Getting at some of the requirements to make sure that the carriers are prepared with a safety program to operate these vehicles properly. Making sure that the carriers are prepared to do any inspection repair and maintenance of these automated vehicles to make sure that the IT system that's running these vehicles and all the sensors and other devices on your vehicles, make sure all those things are properly maintained. And if indeed you're going to take the driver from behind the wheel and have this computer driving the vehicle down the roadway, make sure that it's happening in a safe and responsible manner. So it's a complicated thing. We don't have any predictions on how fast the technology sector is going to succeed in producing these level four and level five vehicles that can operate without a human being behind the wheel. But we think that we need to move forward with this rulemaking to at least lay out our expectation of the safety guardrails that need to be in place if indeed you take the driver from behind the wheel. The comment period Larry Miner referred to around these automated systems has since closed on March 20th. OIDA President Todd Spencer and the association's official comments noted the original request for comment the agency launched on the subject as far back as 2019. As he put it, many of the questions initially proposed remain hypothetical in nature, he said. Quote, and OIDA still questions why the agency has chosen to focus on regulations that may or may not be necessary, depending how the technology performs. Spencer went on to further question whether the agency might be putting the cart before the horse when it comes to a regulatory framework for AVs, nonetheless underscoring that decisions made today have a significant impact on the deployment of automated vehicle technologies, advanced driving system equipped trucks, and ultimately, quote, on the livelihood of professional truck drivers and the economy at large. FMCSA's Larry Miner went on to note exemption requests put in by some AV testing companies that would add hours flexibilities uh, for drivers associated with operating trucks with these systems. Give us a full disclosure, we did receive a couple of applications for exemptions so far. The first of which that we denied a couple of years ago concerned some flexibility under hours of service. So if indeed you have an automated vehicle and it's kind of a team operation and the human being is there, it may stop taking responsibility for driving for some segment of the trip to let the automated system presumably drive itself. Should we provide additional flexibility under the hours of service so that that particular individual that's in the cab or the truck would have additional hours of service allowed based on the level of control and the time that the computer is operating the vehicle? When we denied that request because we just didn't think it made sense for us. And we recently received a request for exemption concerning emergency warning devices. We currently have a requirement that if a commercial motor vehicle is disabled on the side of the road, the driver has the responsibility of getting out there, putting out the warning triangles. Well, if you take the driver out of the seat, how might they accomplish compliance with the requirement that you have warning devices? 
as if indeed the vehicle does break down and you don't have a human being, how would you alert the other motorists on the roadway that the vehicle just broke down? So we do have an application for exemption from two of the manufacturers that are working with automated driving systems because they've come up with some technological solutions that they think might work as far as warning systems that will be around a disabled automated vehicle that doesn't have a human behind the wheel. So it looks like the technology sector is continuing to work on this and they're continuing to plan to go forward. So the agency is planning to do the rulemaking to put those guardrails in place. And in the meantime, we will be looking at those applications for exemptions. And as with all the applications for exemption, there will be a federal register notice that comes out where you would all have a chance to look at the application and offer your comments as to whether you believe we should or should not grant that exemption application. And something that's not controversial at all. Understated sarcasm, everyone. Understated sarcasm. And what's that non-controversial topic? Well, maybe you guessed it. Speed limiters. Now this is one where we received the petition for rulemaking back in 2006, maybe 2007, and the department has been grappling with this issue for a number of years. And back in the latter part of 2016, we did publish a notice of proposed rulemaking. It was a jointly issued notice of proposed rulemaking where the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration would have the responsibility of proposing a speed limit requirement that the manufacturers of the commercial motor vehicles would have been responsible for. And the FMCSA part of the equation would have been to require that the fleets maintain the speed limiting technology or system that's on the commercial motor vehicle. And then there was a long period where there's a silence out of the USDOT. We didn't indicate whether we were going forward or not with the rulemaking. So we did put out a, we got the new terminology for these things that we'd never published before. An advanced supplemental notice of proposed rulemaking indicating that it is our plan to try to go forward with a new carrier-based notice of proposed rulemaking where we would presumably require the motor carriers operating the commercial motor vehicles to go in and have the ECU on those commercial motor vehicles set at a speed to be determined through the rulemaking process. So we are indeed planning to move forward with the rulemaking proposal on speed limiters for commercial motor vehicles. And rather than the manufacturer-based approach that we had put out there in the latter part of 2016, we are looking at a carrier-based approach now. So things are happening with speed limiters. And we have a team cranking out that supplemental notice of proposal making as I speak, so that hopefully later this year we will see that supplemental notice of proposal making. Or hopefully not, in the views of many readers here, I know. And I assure you that sentiment was also on offer at the meeting of the specialized carriers where Larry Miner was speaking. And you'll also see our estimates for what we believe the safety benefits would be for that speed limit or making, and all the estimates for putting a dollar amount on those safety benefits and seeing how many lives we make for sale. And you'll have a chance to weigh in as to do you think it's actually feasible to do what we're proposing? What's it going to cost you? How's it going to impact your fleet operations? So this will be your time to participate in the rulemaking process and give us your feedback on the speed limiter issue that just won't go away. Because as I pointed out, we started this discussion in this debate back in 2006, and here we are a number of years later, still talking about it. So it's one of those issues that just won't go away. And we're looking forward to getting your feedback as we can have that supplemental notice of those rulemaking.
That's a wrap for today's podcast. Like I said earlier, be on the lookout in the coming days for reports from FMCSA's listening session around the broker regs and more. And stay tuned next week for more from my talk with Rob Howes about a big customer network survey they put together examining why different people use their treatment products. Among interesting findings, how many do in fact treat their fuel all year round? Do you? If so or if not, why? Answer that for me on our podcast message line at 615-852-8530. Leave your name and mailing information, and I'll send you a bottle of Diesel Defender and Hal's Multipurpose Alcohol-Free Penetrating Oil. That's 615-852-8530. Otherwise, look forward to more from Matt's here in the coming weeks. Overdrive Radio is a production of Overdrive, the voice of the American trucker. It's edited and produced by me, Todd Dills, with the acoustic guitar and other support of trucker songwriter, Long Haul Paul Marhofer. The theme is Legend of the Snake Man by Marhofer, featuring the guitar work of Travis the Snake Man himself, Lamech, Terry Two Socks Richardson on bass, keys by Tishomingo Jim Whitehead, and on drums, Andrew Marshall. The podcast is backed up further by Overdrive's own news editor, Matt Cole, social media coordinator, Holly Young, Executive Editor Alex Lockie and Video Editors Lawson Rudisil and Mr. Andrew Blinn. See you next time.